Blog Talk Radio. Hey, everybody listening to the Independent Corner. This is your host, Jonathan Moody, and I have a very special guest with me, uh, DJ Perry. How you doing, DJ? Hey, I'm doing pretty good. How you doing, John? Pretty great, actually. Uh, you know, uh, DJ, they, uh, once again, I'm going to thank you publicly about coming on on such short notice, but, you know, I appreciate it, you know. Oh, and well. uh we had a good time last time. It was a it was a couple of years ago, I think. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it was like yeah, I think it was almost two years ago. You know, so it was pretty crazy. I'm on time this time, John, because last time I left you hanging for about 15 minutes. <laughs> well, you know, I really appreciate that, dude. Um, okay, so I guess um, what we'll talk about. I think we talked a lot about different stuff last time, but you know, it's for people who might not know you know much about you that might be tuning in now uh tell us how did you get started as an actor oh my goodness we got to go way back then <laughs> well, you know what i think like a lot of people the acting thing is just something that you're you know you're attracted to at a young age for me i think i've told the story a few times um like a lot of people you know i saw i saw make-believe in the movies and uh, I think even from the ripe old age of seven, I wanted to be Han Solo. So, you know, it kind of started, you know, reenacting with your buddies as little kids, all these scenes from the movies. And, uh, you know, so I think it's the, the love of movies where it started. And then, of course, you know, went through the whole teen years of gathering the friends together with the, the camcorders when they came out. And... um you know, it just kind of progressed. It's a, it's an illness, John. That's what it is. <laughs> it's a but, progressive, uh, progressive illness. It's a progressive illness, exactly. And um, you know, it just, it continues to get, uh, get to you as the years go by. I mean, I love it actually. It's been quite the journey. I feel so happy to have been on it. But um, you know, a lot of people are on this journey. I mean, we're kind of like a a tight little band. It's it's funny how small the movie world is once you actually get into it. Uh, tell me about it. Um, yeah, I mean, like I had, I think I had told you on the last one on the last show that I had found out about you through uh, John Regan, who is a you know the local filmmaker here, you know yeah. that uh, you worked with. So I mean, like you know, I might not not have heard of you through without John telling me something, you know, back then. Well, I may have heard of you through the uh, advancement of MySpace. So, you never really know. It's it's how people now plug into all these social networks, which uh, I think it's great for promotion, but, you know, I'm a little divided sometimes about the new technology, you know, because it's it's, uh, not as personal, I guess, but... But you do meet people from all different states and all around the world, and it is a fascinating, fascinating way to uh, bring people together. So, definitely, MySpace is the necessary evil, I guess, in this day and age. Definitely, and it's definitely a way to get yourself out there. Um, but um, I guess, I guess the next question that I'll say is: Did you study acting in school? You know, I graduated from Michigan State University, and uh, a part of my degree was in theater. I had English theater communications, telecommunications, but I never did a single theater program. I mean, I had some classes and everything, and there's going to be some people out there that saw my early movies, and they go, aha, that's, that's, 
No, but, you know, it was one of those things that, um, you know, I never had that desire to go into the whole theater thing. It was kind of like the guys that were playing with the, the movie cameras and making movies, and then there was kind of people that were in the drama club and went that whole theater way. And, you know, I, I had friends that, you know, were walked in the theater circles, but that was never my thing. I was never into the whole dramatic initiation of wearing girls' panties on your head and they paint your nose blue. And, you know, I just, uh, I'm not real good with all that um, earn your way into something. If I want to do something, I have a tendency to just organize it. I'm kind of alpha personality that way. Cool, cool. <laughs> I'm laughing at the delay on this thing. It's like it's like you talk and then there's just a dead space cut to the crickets. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, do, you have, do you have three people that listen to the show, John? Is that all my fan base could bring in? I got I got three fans out there. I think that tuned in. Uh, how do you know that? Are you in the chat room? Oh, I have no idea. Is there a chat room or something? What there is, is a this? chat room. Oh my There's... god! I I don't even want to look at it because you know they're probably sitting there typing right now. This guy is such a stooge. <laughs> In this no, they're actually uh, they're they're listening. They're enjoying it. At least they're telling me that. So, <laughs> um, so uh, let's see. I guess um, next I will say uh, you know I guess IMDb lists one of us as your first film credit. Um, what was this film about? Like I've never heard of it. Uh, is it something that's out available and every everything? No, one of us. It may be available. I know that the director, uh, Carrie Lazat, has a website where she sells it direct on DVD. I think, uh, I don't know, I check oneofus.com or, or Google the thing. The funny story behind that, John, is that I, like most actors, um, had the aspirations of wanting to, you know, break into these, uh, you know, these larger movies and everything else. And you go through this long drought. I mean, a lot of actors give up after two years where, you know, they're maybe scraping together an industrial video or a commercial or something. Um, I had just pretty much made up my mind that this is what I wanted to do. And, I mean, I was really hunting hard because I didn't have anybody to help me. And as you pointed out, you didn't have the social communities like MySpace and Facebook and all this other stuff. You didn't have the places to turn if you don't live in one of the hubs of the entertainment industry, you know, and a right. lot of the people out there, you know, are from Ohio and Seattle, Washington. I mean, every little state, Kentucky, Tennessee, and they've got the same passion, but maybe not, um, you know, all these people could be sent off to the film schools in New York and LA and everything else. And it was hard to get information in those days as a filmmaker or as an actor. So you really would hunt down, you know, whatever leads you could. And, of course, way back in the day, Michigan was such a great hub for motion picture. Um, that was the sarcasm. But there was a workshop about uh, this movie called One of Us. And so I attended like this, uh, you know, I don't know how many weeks it ran, maybe six weeks or something like this, of going in there and working on these scenes with the director and, you know, if you did a good job, you could possibly get a role in the film. And, uh, you know, the funny thing is, is that um, I was managing a health club at the time. I had hair down past my shoulders. Uh, and, you know, 
the thing is I really was getting into trying to wrap my head around this dramatic screenplay, which is basically it's about um, acquaintance rape on a college campus. The director was making a movie that made a statement about, uh, you know, how this um, young lady on campus is taken with this straight-laced college boy and uh, when, you know, uh, he turns down or she turns down his advances, you know, he, he has her way with her in a very forceful way. And, you know, of course, that wasn't my ideal of what kind of movie I'd pursue. But at this time, I'm just like, give me a chance in front of the camera. I want to show somebody that I can, you know, I've got the heart to do this. And, uh, you know, of course, I look nothing the part because it's all written around kind of your fraternity guy and everything else like that. And after six weeks, I, I had impressed the director, Carrie Lazada, enough that she said, look, I like your acting, but I don't need a barbarian for this role. And at the time, you know, I was working at a health club, and, you know, you're selling uh, membership in a health club and stuff like that. I was in good shape, you know, not that I'm in bad, but I was kind of, you know, I was bulked up for that whole thing. So I stopped lifting all the heavy weights. They cut my hair, dyed it black, and, I mean, it was a total transformation from how I carried myself to the character that was in that film. And, you know, it just – Lon Stratton out of Detroit shot it. He owned Stratton Camera, and, I mean, so it was the 35-millimeter camera. I ended up landing, you know, John, who's the lead. And, you know, it was a great experience. I mean, it was for an actor – who had not really acted in anything but the little, you know, video movies that I had done with my friends, uh, doing that film was like jumping into the deep end of a pool dramatically because, um, you know, it was, it was a really intense scene. And I'm, I'm a very intense actor, but, you know, there was times where we rehearsed some of this before going on camera. I never rehearsed more for a movie than I did for that first one, one of us. It's kind of how the director set it up. And I think, you know, when you're paying for 35 millimeter stock on a, you know, college student, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's an expensive thing. And she was really trying to do this whole thing, you know, a class. And so we did rehearsal. And I mean, we had counselors there and I can remember John a few nights uh, going home from that. And I mean, honestly feeling dirty. <laughs> And I'm thinking, okay, maybe I am getting to the heart of this character. But uh, long story short, I'm at the premiere, and I, you know, I had my girlfriend at the time there. I had my grandmas, my mom, and oh, they were all so proud that, uh, you know, their son played a, a rapist in his, in his <laughs> first. So <laughs> there, there's your story for the business, and um, I'll tell you the, the upside of that uh, was John, because I always say that work. Work begets work, you know, and if you can keep doing something, you know, you keep expanding your network and growing, you know, that's what's going to keep you working in this business. Well, that movie, one of us, ended up in the hands of uh, Wes Craven, okay? And it was funny because oh. I was out to California to read for Scream 2. Now, see... Uh, a friend of the family's, I was told, had worked for West Craven Pictures, okay, and that I should send her something. So I talked to her on a phone one Sunday, and I ended up sending the movie out to her. You know, and a lot of people do that. You know, they 
they're trying to hunt for a contact and, you know, get in the door anyhow they can. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, she's an assistant or she works at West Craven Pitchers. Come to find out, she is Marianne Madalena, the president of West Craven Pitchers. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so, I mean, I couldn't believe it. I, I actually, I was like, well, if I'm going to go out to California and meet this lady, you know, I should brush up on on some of her work. And so it was funny. I rented two of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. And then just on a whim, I had gotten, oh, what was the Eddie Murphy uh, black vampire movie? Uh, the Vampire in Brooklyn. Vampire in Brooklyn. And, sh- and you know what? She executive produced that movie as well. I mean, oh, wow. On that. So her name came up on that, and I was like, okay, this is kind of odd. So not knowing anybody, that was my first trip out to California was to go read for Screen 2. And, you know, that was an adventure. You know, I got hooked up staying at the apartment of somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody. And it turned out to be uh, a total nut job. And I was sleeping on her couch. And, you know, she was sneaking around and coming into her own home only at times that, you know, nobody was there. And, of course, this is something that my mother set up way back in the day. (laughs) Going to California for the first time, everything else. And um, anyways, I ended up moving out of there and going to Venice Beach and staying in the hotel where I experienced my first earthquake, and then I went to go do this audition. And I shit you not, John, I was the only uh, person there who wasn't on a TV show. I mean, Brian Austin Green. Uh, wow, he was at the audition? Yeah, it was all the cast of like 90210. And I mean, because think about it, you're talking about Scream, and I wasn't, you know, I thought when they were bringing me out, I was going to read for police officer number two. No, it was for Nev Campbell's boyfriend in the thing. Huh. Uh, eventually, they cast um, the guy from Sliders, Jerry O'Connell. But it was funny because the feedback was, I mean, I went in there and I read for Wes Craven. And, you know, Wes just seemed kind of like your average uncle or something, you know, at any picnic or cookout or something. But when he started talking about blood and gore a little bit, you know, he gets this weird little twinkle in his eye. But um, anyways, being very straight with me, it was that the executive producers wanted somebody who had a TV show behind them, you know. And I didn't have that, but they liked the read. And then, you know, I did something, uh, oh, you know, it's almost, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, is disappointing, but at the same time, um, I can tell you, John, that I didn't have trouble walking in and reading for any other independent directors after that, you know? It was kind of a, okay, I, I didn't, my nerves didn't overtake me or anything when I went to read for Wes Craven, so anytime that I would go read for, you know, anything else, it just seemed kind of like a, I'm doing you a favor and you're doing me a favor. If we both agree with what we see, then we're both going to be happy. I think actors out there have to really realize that, um, you know, for the producers or the director, they're sitting in that room for, you know, a six, eight-hour stretch. They are hoping that the next person that walks through that door is going to fill one of the roles they're looking for. And it's funny that, uh, you know, the actor's nervous, you know, and they're thinking, oh, my God, am I going to get this role? But the persons that are more nervous are the people in the room that are thinking, we've got this money on the line. Are we going to find the right person to help us tell this story, to, you know, bring this character to life? 
So I think uh, when a lot of actors realize that it's a, a relationship that filmmakers have with the actors, that it's not a frightening thing. It actually becomes an exciting thing that maybe it will be the right fit, you know? So, so one of us, you know what, one of us is that first project that, um, and I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because, you know, everyone always wants to talk about different films, but one of us, uh, the only thing I regret about that is when I was going through the processes, you know, that an actor goes through, I was thinking, okay, this character, John, who ended up, you know, being this person who, you know, would go so far as to rape somebody, at one time, they probably watched Sesame Street. And at one time, maybe they sat in the kitchen and baked cookies with their grandmother. You know, what happened to this person? You know, I wanted to add layers onto the character. And uh, the director, she was a little more interested in, uh, you know, more of a two-dimensional character, I think, that just played the played the part for her female character. But, you know, I guess that was an early sign that I was just trying to add levels onto a character. But sometimes, you know what, sometimes uh, you're not the main push of the story. You're just there to help tell the story, and that's just as important. But Wow, so did you do like a whole, uh, I guess, did you do like a whole character breakdown kind of thing where you kind of like wrote all the stuff that you thought that this character may have, you know, done uh, in his past? I, I, I'll tell you something else. This is, <laughs> oh my God, people out there, I, I'm not even going to, uh, I don't know how to get onto the board that monitors things, but if you saw shortly after one of us, we did another movie called Night Chills, Night with a K. And that was the first movie that our Michigan company did. Uh, me and my friends from a young age back in the 70s and into the 80s, we uh, role-played. Dungeons and Dragons was big, Call of Cthulhu, uh, even this Star Wars role-playing game when it first came out. Um, I grew up with, you know, friends. A lot of my friends are still my friends, John, from elementary school. Wow. Which yeah, which is great. I mean, I just talked tonight. Actually, it's funny. Three of my early friends, you know, called me because, of course, the holidays are coming up and we all try to get together. But uh, some of them from first grade, from third grade, and I've maintained these friendships. So uh, I think that's part of what I like about living in Michigan and then going off is um, it keeps you very grounded in a lot of ways. And, you know, I keep a lot of friends around me that – uh, they're the same guys that I played backyard football with and, you know, martial arts and played soccer with. And so uh, it's odd for some of them to even, you know, see me in the movie light. But for a lot of people out there, that's all they that's all they know me for, you know, is the movies. So I try to keep that nice balance. And, um, you know, it works. So far, <laughs> so, far so good. <laughs> But what I was getting at with the Dungeons and Dragons part is um, I used to be the, the dungeon master. I used to be the one in charge of creating all the adventures and everything, which for, you know, developing character, uh, you know, if anybody out there, if there's other nerds out there, yeah, who, uh, you know, <laughs> Constitution 18, Strength 18, double zeros, all that type of stuff, rolling for criticals. Um, you, you know, there's a lot of character development that goes into that. We used to call it, it's like acting without moving. 
it's the lazy person's acting, I think. <laughs> you know, they, they sit on their butt uh, drinking beer and eating pizza and act without actually moving. But um, there's actually a complexity into the characters and everything. And, and so, you know, that was something that I was doing at a young age. To me, making movies is role-playing on the biggest stage. I mean, uh, instead of these non-player characters, you, you're casting all these supporting actors and everything. Instead of a dungeon, you've got your script, and, and it's kind of a weird way to look at it, but that's, those storytelling skills have helped me with, uh, you know, the screenwriting, which is becoming very successful for me. And I know there's going to be people out there that would probably argue with that, you know, writing is subjective, art is subjective, but... I'm selling these things, and uh, stuff is getting produced, and, and you know, that must mean that uh, somebody out there is enjoying it. And so I, I continue to do the writing, but all that stuff ties back to those early years where, you know, for a Saturday night or a Sunday afternoon, I was in charge of, you know, creating an adventure for all these friends of mine to, you know, go on. So... Yeah, you're really getting the, the nerd trivia out of me tonight. <laughs> well, that's okay. That's a good side. You know, that's a good side to see the other side of DJ Perry. Oh, you yeah. know, you know that. But see, that's that is. Um, you know, I, I've always been a person who has been very careful about choosing good friends. Even back then, you know, there was uh, people I guess that you would say were a more popular clique or something. But you know, those people are transparent. I mean, you can you can see when someone doesn't have your best intentions at heart. And these are guys that grew up in the same neighborhood, and, you know, we used to go sledding together and would play sports together and, and everything else, you know, all the capture the flag, the BB gun wars, you know, all the other crazy shit that kids do. And so mm-hmm. as we got older, you know, I never felt the need to change my friends because these were my friends, if that makes right. sense to you. No, no, totally. Well, I guess it was just because I've always been pretty comfortable in my skin being who I am, and that includes when, you know, people used to laugh in my face about, I used to tell them I was going to be, you know, I was going to make movies. I was going to be in movies. And um, I bet those guys are, like, regretting, you know, hearing that now, you know, regretting making fun of you earlier, you know. And, you know, nine nine out of those ten people are very unhappy. That's just like if you... You know, years ago when IMDb first came out, you know, there was people that, there's disgruntled actors and writers and... Oh, they're still there. Actors. Oh, of course they are. But you know what? I, honest to God, I, I read that stuff on occasion when I'm, you know, using the databases for other business, and I feel sorry for uh, people like that because the key to succeeding in this industry is is by teamwork. And it's by cooperation, and it's teams of people. I mean, teams of digital artists, teams of grips, you know, teams of an art art department. All these people working together. And when when someone lets uh, that frustration set into them, and I felt that frustration, but it's the difference between you know blaming somebody else for the lack of success maybe you're having, or you just grip down and decide you're going to work that much harder, you know, because People aren't deserved anything in this life. You know, you've got to go out there and earn it. And luckily, I had Midwestern parents that really, you know, 
really drilled that into me that if you want something and you're willing to earn it, you can make it happen. And and I guess I'm a good example that that's true, that if you're persistent, you can make stuff happen. Exactly. Um, actually, we have a question in the chat room uh, by, uh, by a guy named uh, Snap T. He asks, um, so IMDB says that your agent is uh, William Morris. What do you think of them? Working with them. Uh, you know what? I can I can tell you right now that uh, their biggest purpose right now for me is marquee value. I'm actually looking at innovative artists and endeavor to maybe move over to. The the bottom line is is that agents really haven't been worth a shit from the beginning. You know, um, at least in, and maybe I'm just speaking for Michigan. I'm not speaking for all agents all over the place. Uh, it's just one of those things that, in my case, they've helped very few times because it's kind of like a shoe store. You know, they'll keep a huge stock of shoes. If you come in looking for some loafers, you know, size 10, extra wide, if they have a couple of them, they'll throw them at you and see if they fit. And if they do, here's how much the shoes are, and they get a sales commission. Now, that's acting. That's the acting business. If you want to reduce it down to it, it's selling shoes. And that's kind of sad because what you want, in my opinion, as an actor is, you know, instead of somebody that's got 3,000 people in their catalog, you know, has uh, 50, 100 people, you know, and they're actively engaged in their client's career, they get higher prices for them, therefore their commission is worth more, you know, it's... uh, And maybe what I'm hoping for doesn't (laughs) truly exist. Luckily, uh, the other the other thing that agents are good for is third party negotiation. If you have a problem doing business or you know dealing directly with folks, uh, you know an agent is good for coming in between there and sometimes acting as a, a mediator, middle person, negotiate the deal. Uh, but I really don't have a hard time negotiating directly with people, so I've really thrived without uh, much help from the agents. Um, I do know that as things get bigger, they come to you and they're going to try to sell you on ways that they can take what you've already built and expand that for you. Now, and you can, you can either roll with that a little bit or you can say, Hey, I got to this point, you know, off my own merits. So, you know, right. William Morris Agency, it's, uh, you know, like I said, I'm not about bad-mouthing anybody. You know, they're people just like us, but they're sitting behind a desk, and they've got their job to do, you know. But also maybe they've got this huge catalog of people. And, I mean, my my agent there, Ramses, he's from uh, Michigan, and, you know, that's that's the connection we share. And, you know, there's some packaging that we're doing on a couple of our movie projects through William Morris Agency, but they're not the only one. And, you know, a lot of people that I'm doing business with now, they're like, oh, man, you should come over to Endeavor. You should come over to the Gersh Agency. You should come look at Innovative Artists. We can get you in over here. You know what? i got to take the time and, you know, sit down and talk to some of these people. And I, you know, I just don't want to jump onto another ship I really eventually, when I do settle with the right agent for acting, um, you know, it's got to be somebody that's kind of, you know, in line with myself. Because as a producer, I deal with a lot of agents. And if I was the talent, 
you know, and that person was representing my livelihood, my career, my money, I'd be a little bit worried sometimes because uh, some agents are not uh, working in their client's best interest by the way they conduct business, in my opinion. Um, but I have met some agents that are very kind, very open to listening to what's going on, what you're offering their client. And if it's something that they don't want their client to be in, either because of schedule or the money's too small or anything else, they're very gracious because they know that, you know, the size of the films that you're doing may double or triple in the next handful of years. And so if they're nice to you now, you might come back to them. I think it's really about, John, long-term business versus short-term business. There's a lot of people, not just in our industry, but in a lot of industries, you know, they're all about the immediate gratification, grab what they can, you know, right now. And I've never been about that. I've kind of taken that, you know, it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. It's about the, you know, the people you get to work with along the way. I mean, I'm very picky about the people that I put in a circle around me when it comes to doing serious movie work because you're married to these people for a couple of years and you better like the people you're with. Otherwise, you know, otherwise you're back in a bad situation. You might as well be in a cubicle, I guess. Definitely. Um, I guess, yeah, also, I mean, like the William Morris agency thing and uh, whatnot, I mean, I guess you would need the agents to kind of get you bigger movies, but since you do a lot of more independent, you know, uh, self, self-financing self kind of stuff, you know, you don't really need uh, the bigger people right now, you know, to kind of help well, you. Know but you still, you always have to kind of have your eye at the, the next mountain to climb as well. Um, the truth is, is that the movie budgets, not only the ones that I'm producing, but the other ones I'm being approached about are getting bigger. And, you know, if you keep doing your thing, uh, those roads do meet. I mean, I was talking about, um, uh, we just attached uh, the German director, U Boll, onto a project. And, you know, some people throw stones at him for his work because he takes a paycheck to adapt video game uh, video games to movies. You know, and, but he really loves, you know, the historic stuff and a lot of the war films and and stuff like that. But who's going to fault the guy for taking a large paycheck to direct video game movie once in a while, you know? Uh, right. Sometimes you have, yeah, because, I mean, I know a couple guys that work for the studio as directors, and they don't get to say, hey, listen, this is what I want to direct. No, you have a reputation for staying on schedule, on budget, and if 20th Century Fox comes and says, you know, we're going to give you this $30 million film, and this is what we want you to direct. Either you can say no, and you don't get paid, and you can go do your $1 million indie film, and I think they should. But in between times, when Universal says, you know, we're going to pay you this amount of money to do, you know, a $30 million film, it's really hard for some of those people to say no based all on principle. Right. You know, it's kind of like I I talked about Steven Spielberg. He made Jaws before, you know, he made Schindler's List. <laughs> you know, it's kind of uh, one had more commercial appeal. And, you know, then he got to do more of his pet projects later. But uh, I've seen a lot of filmmakers, and I know a lot of filmmakers that, 
you know, they come out of the gate with their heart. And I think one of us was even a movie like that. Um, yeah, it had a message, but it wasn't entertaining. You know what I mean? It was just, it was uh, the material. A lot of people, if you're making a movie and you have something to say, that's great. Um, but if it doesn't sell and it doesn't get out there and get the exposure, you know, that can be sometimes the end to some directors, you know, producers career, or I won't say end because only you get to say when it's over, but it can make your road a hell of a lot more steep and rocky. So sometimes it's not bad, you know, you know, I've got a lot of my, uh, you know, fellow horror film uh, fans and, and friends out there, you know, that those movies are very kind to the independent film world because they give a great opportunity for a lot of, you know, unknown directors and talent. And I mean, everybody to come out and really make an impression because <laughs> it's a primal thing, fear and fear kind of like, uh, you know, sex and a few other things they all sell, you know, Right. So, so you know, a lot of people, you know, they come into the business through the horror films, and who's to, you know, who's to knock that? That's and then they use it to uh, to go do other films that they also want to produce as well, you know. Because, you know, it's even like the, you know, I was talking with Eric Williford, who uh, was a writer-producer on The Eighth Plague, and, you know, he... Like, he wants to write a Western, and he's got sci-fi ideas. I mean, people can love different genres, but it's one of those things that if you have something that has a certain amount of success in a certain genre, you know, they're going to want you to basically repeat the whole process. You know, there's a mold, a mold of success. And it's good to capitalize on that a little bit, but you always want to try to diversify, whether you're a filmmaker or an actor. You know, you kind of want to throw, you know, throw the curveball once in a while. Exactly. Um, Snap T's got a couple more questions that he'd uh, he wanted to know, but um, he wanted me oh. to uh, ask you if you know when the Michigan uh, Film Loan uh, Loan Program uh, might be funded, and what do you think of the Michigan Film Incentive Program? Uh, well, the Film Incentive Program, I mean it it changed literally the day it passed. I mean, my phone was ringing with producers and people that I knew in California and different, you know, different states wanting to know uh, what's going on with this. Uh, realistically, do we have the crews to support some of this? I mean, they were on it immediately. And, and I think, uh, you know, from my personal standpoint, it's great. I mean, it plays into the projects that we have underway right now and that we're getting ready to launch. Um, 42%, I mean, it's 40 to 42, depending on certain things, but it's an incredible program. You know, in a sense, it's almost a, it's hard to imagine because growing up in Michigan here, um, back in the day, everything was so expensive. I mean, from the software, I mean, you had Avid and you had all oh, the Media 100 and, you know, the low, low ends were the Adobe stuff, I think, Premiere or something like that. But um, 
it was hard to get a movie done back then. And, of course, back then, you know, before that, they were cutting film by hand and taping it, which I did in my first class. And I was like, well, I know I don't want to do this part of the industry. You know, it was kind of yeah. like, this shit is hard. You don't um, want to be an editor. <laughs> well, back then, editing was, you know, taping stuff together. I mean, those guys, I don't know how they kept their sanity. I mean, I was just doing little pieces, and and I was enough. But, um, you know, so it was just, in Michigan, we were kind of a laughing stock of the film nation, you know, because uh, our film office had one person in it, I think. Janet Lockwood, she's been a friend for many, many years. And, you know, they're just, they were doing Detroit Rock City in Canada, you know, stuff like that. You know, they would they would shoot across the river and catch a few shots in Michigan, but people just were not shooting stuff in Michigan, um, with the exception of little pockets of indie filmmakers like, well, even like Sam Raimi. You know, uh, it's funny. You didn't even shoot in Michigan, did he? You shot in like Tennessee. Well, they like they shot a lot of. Uh, I'm friends with Mike Callio, who's um, Detroit director now, living out in California. And Bruce was his producer on Hatred Future of a Minute. Minute. Yeah, yeah. And and I saw some of the early movies that they did do in Michigan, kind of some of the college films. They're like Three Stooges episodes, The Blind Waiter and stuff like that. And and it was funny because you could see the style even way back then, you know, that kind of came to define, um, you know, Sam Raimi and Robert Tappert's kind of style. And, of course, Bruce, you know, Bruce is Bruce. <laughs> so, you know, Michigan really has changed so drastically that it's, it's uh, it's amazing. And, you know, the other thing for the actors in this area, you know, for them, even though Michigan's still not getting the respect for its actors because, you know, we were a commercial industry here, and that's one thing that I failed miserably in because I'm one of those people that, A, it's hard to find me clean cut on a given day, and then, <laughs> B, I don't like wearing... Uh, the suits and all that kind of stuff, which almost everything that they do with the automotive industry, you know, back then included that. And then let's see. Um, let's see. What was I on? C or D here. But, uh, you know, the suits and, and, well, basically the whole general attitude that I got to smile and be cheesy and try to sell something. And, you know, early on I just kind of said, screw that. You know, that's that's not for me. But for a lot of people, that's how they made their living. And, of course, you know, commercial acting and dramatic acting is completely different. And that was my problem because, you know, I didn't even want to waste my time chasing commercials because standing in front of a truck, you know, or something like that, to me that wasn't acting. You know, as an actor trying to keep your ego alive as you go from one job to the next, I could say that was acting. But no, it wasn't. It really wasn't, you know. It's kind of like uh, you might be acting happy or acting, but, you know, everything was purposely inflated, and, and it just didn't make sense to me, so I, I just stopped doing the commercial stuff. But most of your actors around here were kind of geared towards that. And so I think, you know, 
I think this is going to be a great opportunity for a lot of actors to get their feet wet as day players. And, you know, the Clint Eastwood movie's been here, and Drew Barrymore's had a movie here, Sigourney Weaver's had movies here. I mean, they're flooding in. And before, if you were an actor in Michigan, commercials were about all you had, that or get together with a small group of indie filmmakers. Now you've got the whole talent base in Michigan. They're at least starting to build their foundation with, um, you know, some studio projects, whether it's a even though they're only getting really the day players to start with and they're still casting most of the starring stuff out of California, resumes are being built and people are becoming eligible for their SAG cards, which is, you know, an important thing. And, um, you know, so I think Michigan is just, it's a huge transformation. And I just talked to another producer out in California um, earlier today, and he said the great thing is that it's causing stimulation to a lot of different markets that they're, I don't know if they'll top Michigan right away, but they'll make their incentive package better. So it's more competitive. You know, obviously if you've got a script that's set in the Everglades, you're not going to come to Michigan to shoot it. But, um, you know, rather than what's cheaper doing a rewrite on your script or is that small difference in the rebate savings worth just keeping it in Florida? And, you know, these are the questions that start to get answered as your budgets go up and up and up is that, you know, you find yourself uh, trying to balance the biz with the show. Exactly. Um, okay, well, I guess the uh, another question I have to ask, um, <clears throat> since you are a writer, producer, and um, actor, which one would you, if you had to choose one of them to do and you couldn't you know, choose all three. What would you choose? How old am I? <laughs> if I was 85, I picked a writer. But anything up until then, I think I'm going to have to say actor first. Actor first? Oh, yeah. Because that's how you pretty much got started, right? Pretty much. Oh, yeah. You know, because it, it was like you're making contacts, I'm watching how stuff is done, then you get attached on the projects, every actor's been there, and then the project's not going. Then the project's delayed again. It's not going. And finally, as a frustrated actor, you work your ass off to get a part, and then the project's delayed, 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 and finally you're like, why aren't we doing this? What are we missing? You know, and someone says, well, we don't have this or we don't have that. Next thing you know, you're on your way to producing because you're bringing stuff to the table. All right, here's this, this, this. Now let's move, you know. So... It kind of happened that way. Uh, producing kind of uh, grew out of a necessity, but it became a nice thing because if you want to do a certain kind of movie and you're persistent enough, you don't have to beg for scraps at anybody's table. You know, you can go and do the movie. You know, if you want to do a uh, puppet movie, <laughs> you go make a puppet movie, you know. That, right. It's kind of a stupid example. I was actually thinking about, uh, oh, what's Trey Parker and those guys. But, you know, you're just not the hiring America. else. Yeah, you know, it's, I, I really respect people who sometimes go off and do the kind of project they want to do. Okay, we talked earlier about, you know, sometimes the director has to do a certain kind of film. And, you know, the money's so good, you know, it's like, my God, they've got payments like everybody else. 
but it is nice when an artist will take a stand and really, uh, you know, but you got to balance that against the risk. You know, if you're going to do something that's completely a pet project, it better be your money or, you know, it better be uh, a relatively safe budget, you know. That's why you see a lot of times actors, they attach their pet projects onto the big studio things, and they end up doing, you know, pet projects for uh, a much smaller sum of money. Because it's artistically, it's what they want to do, even though, you know, the numbers are saying, uh, you know, oh, Mr. Brooks, uh, Kevin Costner might not be supported as uh, a bad guy by the audience. That's a true story I heard, that they had trouble... The first team of producers had trouble getting that movie produced with Kevin Costner's name attached because he was set to play the bad guy. And people didn't think that they were going to want to see Kevin Costner as a bad guy. I don't know how the movie did overall, so maybe maybe the business people were right. Maybe, uh, you know, I don't know. But you see what I'm saying is that it gives it gives you an option to fight against typecasting. Right. I think that's an important thing. And definitely, uh, the typecasting kind of kind of sucks, especially. I mean, as far as you as an actor goes, uh, I mean, do you do you feel you've been typecast, or do you feel that you've been able to do other roles that you might not have, or pe- you might not have thought people thought of you as? You know, uh, I haven't. I haven't really felt. Uh, I'm not uh, minutely typecast. I think I'm kind of typecast for um, characters that are a little rough around the edges. So I'm a fan of characters that are gray. You know, you got light gray, which are, you know, your good guys who they can kind of delve into that dark side to match wits with those, you know, walking on the darker line. Or you got your dark gray, your uh, bad guys who have a hint of humanity to them, you know. I don't think people are black and white. I think most people are shades of gray. And that's kind of how I approach characters, whether, you know, as a writer. And, um, you know, I do tend to play those kind of murky characters. People don't usually... uh, um, The other thing is, what is it, comedies. I I like comedies. I think that uh, the few comedies that I've done uh, have been a great experience. It's just... um, I always say work begets work. A lot of my stuff doesn't, uh, you know, it's not showcasing humor, so people don't automatically think about humor when they think about DJ Perry. But, uh, you know, maybe if you ask some of the friends that I associate with, they, they would have a different take on it. <laughs> you know, they, they might think, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got a couple of director friends that they are bound and determined to show the world the comedic side of DJ Perry, and I tell them, all right, write the script, knock me out. <laughs> Come on, bring So, who knows? There may be, that's that's going to be, uh, what's the guy from The Naked Gun? Uh, Leslie. Well, I will say you were really great in uh, Ting, uh, Tengu Guacamole. Well, I thank you, know. you Josh. There will be a check for $10 on its way to your house. <laughs> no, I mean... I, I bought it from Amazon, and uh, you know I'd seen it, and that's uh, where I got familiar. I guess more familiar with you and David uh, Borowitz. Uh, you know, I mean, so you guys were fantastic together. You know, 
Now, and Mike Deeney is uh, one of the directors that has sworn that he will, uh, you know, he will bring out the comedic side of me and introduce that to the market. And uh, he was, of course, the director of Taking Guacamole. And, um, uh, I, you know, he's he's been talking to us for years about the whole, doing a whole movie kind of like the Harold and Kumar, but with Stan, Stan Reed and Casey Sweatin'. <laughs> so, you know, who knows? Maybe someday. Those characters did seem to resonate with people. It was funny. Uh, that was the first time ever we had a premiere in uh, L.A., and there was people following me around with this camera uh, trying to get me to talk like Stan Reed. You know, they weren't they weren't happy that I wasn't in character at the premiere, you know. they I guess after seeing the movie, they wanted Stan Reed to be at the after party. And uh, <laughs> that's a little weird. So, uh, you know. They wanted you to be like a jerk to them? I, I Well, you know, I think they just wanted, uh, you know, it's like a performing monkey. You know, I'm going to Venice Beach with a hat and give me a dollar, and next thing you know, Stan Reed. No. Uh, no, it's funny, John. I mean, a lot of people, that's how they do know you. Unless, unless uh, you know, it's a, a talk show or a radio show like this, how many people really get to know, you know, the person? It, it's funny. They know the characters on the screen, and... Uh, you know, I I have to say, you know, you put a lot of yourself into those characters, but you know that doesn't mean they're an accurate depiction of of you. So, right. So how are you doing? Go ahead. Oh no, I was just saying, right. <laughs> you go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, you go ahead. <laughs> it's just kind of weird because it does feel like just you and I are talking, but then to think like. You know what? You and I talking in this being a radio show, but it's funny because, like, I don't have the radio show playing or anything. This is what it feels like to me if uh, we were under wiretap. Like, all those people out there, the CIA, and you and I are just having this talk about movies. But do you think that maybe there's somebody listening to our conversation? I don't know. Oh, there are people. They're listening to it live. So wow. right right now there are people listening, but there might be CIA agents listening. You never know. Uh, have you ever thought that every time you picked up your phone, something like this could be happening? You could be the topic of a radio show and you don't even know it. Yeah, exactly. They may be listening to our show right now and broadcasting it on another radio show. Ah, yes. It's piracy upon piracy because <laughs> I am huge in Thailand, you know, John. <laughs> that's funny. Oh, that's great. Um, so I guess uh, what we'll go on to next is, um, you know, I guess we touched a little bit about your writing, but um, I, I was I was wondering, do you have any like habits as a screenwriter? Do you do anything like, um, do you like to write during the morning, afternoon, or night, things like that? Well, I was up to three thirty in the morning writing last. I want to say last night, but it actually, you know, is into the wee hours of the morning. Um, I like that midnight to, you know, 2, 3. That works good for me. I also like early, early in the morning, you know, especially because hazelnut coffee is always part of that. Uh, so, you know what, it's 
Yeah, early morning and late at night when my phone isn't ringing and uh, when I'm not dealing with other business issues. It's nice because you can sometimes feel the world just kind of disengages and and you can kind of focus on uh, on your writing, which, Jesus, writing is like controlled schizophrenia. I mean, you have to get into the minds of all these characters and you're trying to write with texture and everything else. And I tend to write for actors as well. So... Um, a lot of actors that have read the material that I write tend to like it because maybe it's because I'm an actor writing it. You know, I try not to uh, put too much in there so it's acceptable to, you know, executives who read it and everything, and it's not just heavy with all this detail. But you can be very careful about how you choose your words and your sentences and really give it a very descriptive nature that, you know, if the reader kind of forgets their reading the script for a little bit, and they're kind of on, you know, that automated visual in their head, uh, that's a good thing. I've had several people, when they come back and say, you know, I couldn't stop reading it, it was a page turner, then you know you really had something good. And I enjoy that as an as an actor when I get scripts, and, you know, I'm, I'm four scripts deep that I still have to read. One of them is Mr. John Regan's that you brought up earlier. Yeah, uh, you told, I think he told me something about that, so... Yeah. yeah. We won't talk about his, his script publicly here because... No, right, right. I understand. That, that, I wouldn't even think about it. Project. Yeah, anyway. top secret. Well, <laughs> it's top secret, John. <laughs> oh, I wish I could edit that out then. Oh, damn. <laughs> right. We not even talk about it. But we could talk about it, John. Unless you send $5,000 and a getaway card to John's address. <laughs> Definitely. All right. So what would you like to talk about? What were, what were you going on about before then? Oh, you know, we've been rambling. Uh, all right, well. Um, <laughs> I'm a friend guest, John. This is, this is coming in and, uh, you know, we could talk about any number of projects or we could take calls early. I don't care what we do. Well, before we take the callers, which uh, you know we'll have them, we'll have them call in. Hopefully, if they if they want, this is got a short notice, so I don't know how many people are going to be able to really like call in. But um, just I, as I, as cricket sounds. Yeah, but I I will ask this because I kind of want to know. Um, you had done three things with, um, as far as I know, and three things that have been on. Um, uh, IMDb that that have been listed um, that you've worked with Kevin Hirschberger on the Nest the short film that you you guys did and uh, far far from home the camp scenes from the war between the states as well as yeah. Wicked Spring uh, tell me what it was like to work with those work on those movies uh, which one in particular please well all right if you want to start with the Nest uh, Nest how did you, how did you like meet Kevin Hirschberger and you know, and work on that project. Uh, Kevin Hirschberger and I met through cameraman uh, William Eichler, who is a Steadicam operator and camera operator out of uh, out of Michigan here. And he was gonna go work on some project in Pennsylvania up in the mountains. It was supposed to be, you know, this Korean War film, and that sounded interesting to me. So. He, you know, and I was working over there uh, with, in the woods, you know, with the Linders at camp, you know, we were doing the horror films. And I think we'd done night shows at the time, too. So 
uh, we'd already been through the whole process of, you know, getting the paperwork together because, again, you know, I always start harping on this, but a lot of people, you know, they want to pick up a camera and they want to have fun with it, but they don't do the biz side of it. They don't, you know, they don't form a, a corporation. They don't get the proper releases. You know, and even from the earliest films, we were at Collective Development all about, you know, doing the foundation paperwork right. And we made mistakes along the way, and then we would take the steps to correct them. And then you don't make those mistakes again. But, um, you know, I went out there and I met Kevin on The Nest. And the Nest was kind of one of those, uh, you know, projects that was more, you know, put together as a shoot, but it wasn't put together as a business property. You know, it, it, and because there's a lot of people that just don't grasp the whole business side of it. And that's that's a big key to success is even if you don't want to be, you know, some some directors and stuff, I, I don't want to deal with the details of all that. Well, you know, in the early independent world where you're wearing three hats, you just might have to. And you know, if you take the extra time to put the paperwork together, you now have a product. And that's basically what I did is I came in and not only did we put the nest into shape, but, um, you know, I worked to, we created Lionheart Filmworks, Mm -hmm. which before I came in, Lionheart Filmworks was not even an official company. It was more of a name. And so that was formed. And under that, we did Wicked Spring and the Far, Far From Home, which was, uh, I think, a Civil War uh, era band, you know, it, it was a fun project. My God, the people we stayed in the house was an original, I mean, from that time period. And, um, you know, so the experience with Kevin was basically coming into forming a sister company to Collective Development. We didn't change the, the business model, uh, but started a company. So, you know, he he actually had some ground under him. And now... Now Kevin's, you know, kind of uh, on his feet and on his own. And matter of fact, I think um, we're doing that uh, trade of some stock, and and uh, Kevin's going to end up being the sole owner of Lionheart Filmworks. But, oh wow, uh, really cool. Yeah, well, you know, I think when I came over there, initially it was kind of to, you know, help him with the nest and try to get everything set up, but. Uh, you know, he's kind of, everything's kind of set up now, and, and he has his projects that he has in mind to do. And, of course, we've got our slate of stuff, and that's not to say that there won't ever be another collaboration, but um, it's just time, you know. To my, my attention is on collective development, and his is on Lionheart, and so I think this year we're going to make that finally official so that he has 100% of the company back. All right, awesome. Um, I guess I, I have a question from another uh, chat room listener, uh, Babette Bombshell. Uh, she asks, how, how, does, uh, how do you deal with the natural de- deconstruction and reconstruction of a script that you have written during the process of the filmmaking, and what's it like to see your script altered in editing? Hmm. Oh, you mean, uh, well, I'm... I'm going to assume that she's talking about, um, you know, once you see it, uh, you know, edited, the the final footage. I'll tell you, you know, a lot of producers, they don't even want writers on the set, you know, because 
a lot of times writers can be so attached to the work. I think that's the point she's getting at is, um, you know, that it can be, you know, you have these distraught writers creating chaos because they feel that, you know, someone's mutilating their baby. Um, I'm one of those people and I, that for me, I love to see how people interpret the work, you know? So if I, once I assign the script over to the LLC and a director has it, I mean, uh, within reason that you're not totally destroying the core of the story, how somebody puts their touches on it, whether it's, you know, an actor that comes to the director and says, uh, wouldn't this maybe be a better way to say it? And if the director agrees, I don't get in the middle of those creative discussions as a writer. Um, I've had, you know, actor friends that said, what do you feel as the writer? And I can say, well, I can tell you what I was thinking as the writer, but I'm not the authoritative figure for this. You need to speak to the director and get his final say because once it leaves my hands, if I happen to be the screenwriter, then my attention goes on to the character that I'm playing, which a lot of times is, is a major character, so it requires attention. And, and I'm always, you know, flattered. I mean, maybe if I was also the director calling the shots on the editing you might have something different, not necessarily better. And so, you know, for me as a writer, I'm I'm very good at just letting go, and I'm always excited to see uh, how someone else that you've hired, basically, puts their spin on it. A uh, good example is I was uh, the original story writer on this um, monster script that uh, was produced down in uh, Atlanta just a few months ago, some friends of mine from Fear Maker Studios. It's called Savage. And um, they optioned the script, and it was just produced. And originally I had some intentions of acting in it, but we had some conflict of schedule. I actually ended up going out and uh, had some finishing shots in California on a film. But I'm excited to see how it, how it comes out. You know, it's very exciting to me that someone took uh, some characters that I had previously created, you know, some lines of dialogue, and Lynn Derzik and a few other people at Catharsis actually worked on that script that was that was uh, sold. And for me, it's, I mean, that's kind of exciting to just see what somebody else did with it. So that kind of stuff doesn't really bother me. I guess, you know, other people it would, but... Hey, that's part of the business. I mean, if you love it so much, you can just publish it and sit on it. But, you know, if you want to see it made, you're going to have to you're going to have to show some teamwork. There's some compromise. That's just the way it is unless you're going to try to do everything. Exactly. Um, I think that was a really good answer to your question. Um, if anybody wants to call in at all, I'll let them know that right now it's midnight. It's past midnight. So if anybody wants to call in, uh, you may at uh, 1646-915-8693. Feel free to call in whenever you guys want, and I'll just keep going with the show. So I uh, just want to kind of throw that out there. But um, all right, so I guess we 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 talked about uh, a lot of the the earlier stuff too, um, but we didn't actually touch at all on uh, in the woods um, <laughs> at all. You're back to my oldest stuff. My uh, God. Well, you know, we gotta talk. We'll we'll get up to your newer stuff, but you know, 
kind of want to talk about everything. Now, let's talk about In the Woods. I, you know what? I, I love that film. I got a soft spot for it. It was my first starring role, John. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm happy it wasn't my last. Well, that's good. That's a good thing, you know. Well, did you like the movie? Let me ask you the question. What did you think of In the Woods? I actually have it, but I haven't been able to watch it yet. I feel bad. I was looking for it today to watch it before the show, actually, and it's uh, in my my huge collection of movies, so I'm, I'm looking for it, but I will watch it. And you know what? I'll send you an email about it, you know? Wow. So. I got. I, I will warn you that it did spend some time at one one time. It was in IMDb bottom one hundred, I think. For real? <laughs> yeah. I I do know. It, well, isn't it about like firefighters fighting a monster? Oh yeah. Um, I will say that I didn't have anything to do with writing that script. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but you know what? It's one of those situations that um, trying to raise certain amount of money and they raised uh part of that money and some some very primitive civil war surgery was done to that script and uh it hurt it that and and um i think the the creature effects uh were kind of ambitious what he had in mind for the project and and that fell a little bit short which led to uh I always say that it's like me on the Muppet Show. <laughs> if you want to see me on the Muppet Show, watch In the Woods. <laughs> I hope I didn't ruin it. Is that that's not called a spoiler, is it, John? Did I spoil anything for you? I, I don't think so. I, I'll still no, watch no. it. I tell you, there like if there are some people out there. I, it really got attacked by a lot of the critics of horror films because you know it didn't have the mandatory huge amounts of gore. And it did not have the boobs almighty, you know, which, you know, how dare somebody think that they could make, you know, a horror film and miss those vital components, <laughs> you know, and people, look, at we did it with Night Chills. We made a PG-13 sort of uh, story, and it's very commercial, and it's done well. It's been re-released and re-released and re-released. But the true hardcore fans of that, they really, they like their gore, which that's why I ended up doing The Eighth Plague. I wanted to, uh, uh, you know, give the critics of my work who said there's not enough of this, there's not enough of that, all right, here you go, you know. So I think you're going to enjoy it. It just, uh, it's an ambitious, look at it, it was Linderzik's first uh, thing that he had directed, first feature film. It's pretty damn ambitious. You know, it's all shot, I think, on 16. And we worked our ass off to make that film. And we had a good time making it. And the, the funny thing is, you know, I can remember this was uh, shortly following one of us. I think it was my next film. And, again, you know, at least, at least this time I'm playing the rookie firefighter and everything else fighting monsters little trouble with the wife, but at least I wasn't the rapist. Yeah. <laughs> you know? At least you weren't the monster. Yeah, at least I wasn't the monster. Good one, John. Exactly. <laughs> but that, that, I mean, that's great, though, uh, that you got a chance to be the hero in the movie, or you know, at least the main actor, the, the main star. So. And I'll tell I, you, 
my acting, I was told, everyone was like, if you're making something campy, why, uh, why didn't you play it more campy, you know, why'd you play it so serious? Look it, I was told that we were making something like The Relic, okay? If you've ever seen that film. And I haven't well, actually, uh, but I know what it's about. Yeah, well, you know what, I, listen, I was told we were making something intense. These were the words that I had to say. You know, I'm just a hired actor on this thing, and I did end up being a co-producer, but that meant I could make a suggestion, you know? And uh, so anyways, it's just, uh, when, the, when the creature effects don't match up to the intensity of the acting, you know, it becomes kind of humorous when the dialogue uh, is just not something that a person would normally say, you know? But it's not the first time that you've seen, you know, funny horror films. I think that's part of the fun of them is sometimes uh, that they are poorly written or the the monster looks like a guy in a gorilla suit. But he, I know, you know, the intention by the director, Lynn, was to really make something intense. And, um, you know, it fell short of the mark, but it wasn't for lack of trying. Well, you know, yeah, I mean... At least, at least he gave you know. Um, at least he got it out there anyway. He made it. You know, he finished the movie. So well, I mean, but you know what? I think he and he's talking about you know, he works at a TV station. You know, so he's always been in kind of the field. But after in the woods, kind of took a panning. You know, I think uh, he laid low for a while because, you know, you gotta you gotta have a tough skin. You just gotta kind of say, yeah, okay. You know, hey, try that best. If you didn't enjoy it, sorry, I'll try to entertain you better on the next one. You know, thank you for your support. And and you move on. He may he may direct again someday. You know, I, he, he's finally talking about it again. And, um, you know, that was his first movie. So, you know, everybody's got their, uh, their stair-step process. So I kind of would like to see him do something again. Have you been trying to encourage him, trying to let him know, you know, why don't, why don't well, you go do something? No, yeah, I've I've been encouraging, and um, you know, I think he's he's contemplating uh, a couple other scripts. And the nice part is uh, this Nancy Gideon; she's uh, an accomplished writer of I don't know, like thirty, forty novels. She kind of came on board catharsis to help uh, tighten up the script process, and you know, so she's. I think they've got some really good product. I don't think you're going to see the same mistakes in the writing. And I think, you know, knowing Lynn, he's probably watched that film, you know, enough that he he knows exactly where he'd want to improve upon. So, you know, maybe it's just taking him to this time to, you know, get to where he wants to take another go at it. But, you know, that's the thing with this business. You know, you're going to stand up on a pedestal and say, here's my art, and they're either going to throw flowers at you or stones. You know, it's one of the two. And even those even those uh, flowers have thorns because, you know, even when people are saying we love your work, we love your work, there's going to be a handful of people that are going to hate your work just because they don't want to be conformers, you know. So you you can never please everybody. That's the That's the bottom line. I'm, I'm looking on Amazon.com, and you're right. Uh, Night Chills has been re- released and re-released and re-released the same. Uh, oh, yeah. But, yeah. 
uh, I, I want to ask you, what, what do you, what would you suggest if other people were to buy Night Chills on um, on DVD uh, through Amazon.com? What would you say is the best, uh, you know, would be the best DVD for them to go get? Well, the best quality is the special edition one, and it's really cool because uh, you know several years I think. You know, Lynn said he was doing the special edition, and he just, he did a little bit of editing, but, you know, it didn't work huge magic to it. But what I love about the special edition is we did a a, a commentary, you know, and it was um, Stuart, who played one of the uh, firefighters. He has a, a studio. He's into the whole, you know, audio-visual visual TV thing. And then Lynn and I, and uh, we did our commentary, and, it's pretty funny because we hadn't seen each other in several years. And then we got together just to, uh, you know, just to do the commentary. So I think the best quality video and then with the added stuff, it might be that version, the special edition. I know that um, uh, the first version that was released by Spectrum back in the day. I think that's that the one really, I got. Oh, my God. You know what? That company, they they sold a crap load of night chills. Then they paid off their employees and everything else, and they went bankrupt. The first movie our company did, and they really put a spin on us, you know. It just, uh, it was like one of those ultimate nightmares for the indie filmmaker, you know. They just uh, paid out, liquidated the company, and sunk away. You know, and that's kind of like uh, Tanya York, York Entertainment. She did a number on Tanya Guacamole. So, oh, uh, I, you know, I, I hate always giving people bad publicity, but I've, I've heard, I have not heard yet a really good thing about people using uh, York Entertainment as a. Oh, I would tell people know. to avoid it like the plague. I mean, Mike Dini, uh, he went through the whole court process, and they were in the wrong. And I'm not going to go into it all, but. I just encourage, uh, you know, filmmakers, and it's hard. The low-level distributors, when you're getting in there, you have to get them to see you as a a long-term uh, feeder of product. If you're just kind of like a, a one-off, they call it, a filmmaker with just one movie and they're hoping prayer on that, Man, you run a high risk of being screwed over, especially if, you know, you've had a lot of rejection with the film and you're just dying to get it out there. I guess if you don't have a lot of money into it, getting it out there and the exposure is well worth it. I mean, Night Chills, uh, you know, it's made it's made some money, but at the same time, you know, it's it's been released over and over and over again. So... You know, we we had a good time with it, and uh, so you either want your exposure out of it or you want to make a good distribution deal. And it's hard. Of course, your distribution deal is going to be dependent upon, you know, the strength of your final product. So, well, we got well, no call-ins. <laughs> well, uh, I guess, I, like I said, it was, uh, I, like I said, it was, uh, you know, kind of last-minute thing, so... And I think the people in the uh, I'm I'm glad we had some people in the chat room talking and you know whatnot and uh, asking oh, a few great. questions. So you know at least you know there are people listening out there that are you know at such short notice you know. 
that's uh, what I kind of appreciate. But um, I, I guess, you know, I'm glad I, I kind of came up with a bunch of questions, you know. <clears throat> and um, I guess the, the you know, I've got a whole junk load, actually. So let me, I guess right. let me try to get down to them. Let's get but, some. We'll, we'll knock them out. Outlaw Prophet. Uh, what was it like to work with uh, David Hevner? Hevner. 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 David Hevner is uh, kind of like he was Nashville's uh, Roger Corman. You know, he had he. I think he made a lot of money in the '80s on some action films. You know, he had the formula down. Make a film that's uh, similar to other stuff that's kind of popular. Throw a couple names in there, you know, Joe Estevez and you know just a just a few different people and and put it out there. Uh, it was one of those. I had a great time. Uh, Amy from uh, she was my co-star in the woods was doing the movie out there, and I was actually being pitched as the bad guy in the film, and I ended up. Uh, getting a, a supporting thing as her boyfriend, which was goofy because I just played her husband in, in, uh, in the woods. <laughs> but really, I'd never been to Nashville, and I just wanted to come there and film on a movie and see Nashville. And so, you know, went there, and it was, uh, it was low, low, low budget. I mean, uh, they had all the good equipment, but we were eating, you know, bologna sandwiches and stuff for pretty much every meal. But I had a blast. You know, I really did. It's um, I think we knew at the time we weren't making anything real. Uh, you know, this wasn't going to be any life-changing uh, filmmaking, and I'm pretty proud that it's my one trauma film. So, wow, you know, yeah, yeah you know, David, David was uh, he's just an interesting character. I mean, we spent some good time together. Matter of fact. I stepped up and we did some stunts together. Uh, their stunt team was having trouble uh, working through some choreo, you know, some choreography and stuff like that. And I used to teach martial arts, and I stepped up and I started talking with them. And they ended up, uh, if you look very closely, their makeup for their uh, bad guys was like a jumpsuit with white paint on their face, right? And mm -hmm. in a couple of the scenes, uh, I actually played the zombie, the one where he appears like he's this strong android and flips me all the way over. It's because, you know, from Hapkido and stuff, I could flip all the way over and land on the ground and not get hurt. And, you know, I demonstrated it for him, and he was like, wow, because it looks like, you know, he's got this superhuman strength, and really I was flipping myself over. And so he thought that was great, and so they suited me up, and I was in the movie not only that scene, but then they added me crashing through the table, which I don't know if you can even see that. I haven't seen that movie in so long. But, uh, you know, it was just we had a good time and, you know, met some people. That's where I met Rebecca Holden from Knight Rider, who plays April, and she went on to be in uh, a couple different films for us, uh, Night Chills from Venus and The Book of Ruth, the biblical film that we just wrapped up in California, uh, she actually plays a part in that. I have a tendency to, to work with, you know, actors, uh, you know, kind of have loyalties there because you know what people are like off camera as well as on camera, you know? 
Right. And I don't buy into a lot of drama. I mean, all the all the all the stuff you see, you know, that's PR. That's for that's marketing and promotion. You know, I don't like to bring that onto the set. You know, it's a team of people. Some of the people work in front of the camera. Some of them work behind the camera. But they're a team of people working towards telling the story. And so I really try to eliminate those barriers on our films, you know, that, uh, I mean, you, the crew still have to be respectful that an actor, if they're off to their side and they're quiet, they, they might be working on lines. But, you know, uh, we eat together and, you know, we, we really try to keep it as a, as a unity thing. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, and you, yeah, and it, it's definitely, it seems like you have uh, a good amount of uh, people that you've worked with before in the past that you don't, wouldn't mind putting in another movie, you know. Uh, oh, yeah, and you, know, you work with them all the time, it seems. Well, you know what, there's some people, we've got uh, CDI consists of uh you know, first off, there's a group of some actor producers that basically they adopted the same sort of philosophy that um, I took that, you know, yes, you are sometimes going to get roles out there, but also it's fun to, uh, you know, put something together, you know, make your own movie. And, uh, you know, so there are teams of people that work on, on certain pictures and it's getting harder though because, when you take all the movies that I do outside our company, I literally probably know or I've been in contact through the movies um, a couple thousand actors, maybe 2,000. Because you got to think that you take 30-some movies and then you take a cast of about 50. And, you know, it's hard because everybody starts to, you know, they want work. There's and then you're casting a movie that's got, you know, 30 players in it or something like that. It, it's tough sometimes. Hey, do you think you could do uh, Seven Degrees of uh, DJ Perry? You know? Oh, like where, where where you could just find out, like, you know, uh, like even like Wes Craven, you know? I mean, you know what yeah, I mean? Like I did the math. I probably know about 1,700 actors or so. I, okay, I was just trying to do an average out there. You know, and it's hard because what I do is, is uh, you know, I try to put, you know, people in front of the directors. If they're not directly affecting distribution, you know, kind of how we work stuff is there's certain bankable actors in certain roles, and the producers have to put those in place. And beyond that, it really becomes a creative decision with the director. But, you know, you can put people right there in front of the director and, of course, if that person has a good reputation, both for in front of the camera, behind the camera, you start to see some repeat work. But I'm sorry, I cut you off. What were you saying? Oh, I was just, I was just talking about the uh, seven degrees of T.J. Perry. But oh, really, yeah. You know, okay. that you could keep doing that. You know, you could do that. You could figure out other people who... Uh, yeah, yeah, there's enough know. on there that you can weave your way to some pretty neat corners. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, oh. you know, one one person specifically I wanted to, uh, or a couple of people actually that worked with you uh, a few times that, uh, you know, I've been a fan of uh, myself, uh, like Aaron Jackson, who I've uh, been a fan of since California Dreams, since I used to watch that uh, when I was younger. 
you know, and um, and uh, of course Dennis Haskins. Dennis, so, talked to Dennis uh, last week. How's he um, doing? He's doing good. You know, he's really a person who I think that uh, you know Dennis is going to continue to find his way. He needs he needs to find his way more onto the big screen, and I think he's he's. Uh, slowly achieving that. Um, it's funny, we're doing a Christmas movie that we're packaging to do next uh, winter here in Michigan. Imagine that, with all the rebate stuff. But we are looking at Dennis Haskins to play Santa Claus. Yes, sir. Wow. That, that, yeah. Now, that, I could see that. Well, if Dennis, he's a little bigger than he was when he did Save by the Bell. No, I mean, but I could definitely see it. Yeah, I could. You know, I, I think he could. I think he could pull off Santa Claus. Well, the you funny know? thing, you know, who he got to? Uh, there's. It's funny because in the North Pole, there's a bar called the Jolly Elf, and the bartender in the thing is Gus the Yeti, and he is a Yeti, right? Right. Well, Dennis read the script and he recommended uh, Bill Goldberg, the wrestler to play the Yeti. So about a week ago, I got an email from Bill Goldberg saying that, yeah, he was interested. He was in to play Gus the Yeti if he got to beat up Dennis Haskins. <laughs> so, nice. So, so deal done. We'll add some scenes. Because um, he and Dennis are friends, and they've been looking for a project together. And so, yeah, I'm excited to work with Dennis again. Dennis is a, he's, he's a, he's a professional. He really is. Uh, when it's when it's work time, he's all about the work. But when it's time to relax and kick back, Dennis knows how to relax as well. Now, now is this happening? Um, because is, is this the movie that's a Holly Jingles and Clyde movie? Yep, not this winter. It'd be next winter. So technically, it could be December two thousand nine, or we could end up shooting it into uh, two thousand ten but it's that winter season because we're getting ready to shoot Wild Michigan in February. Yeah, uh, and I know you've been working on that for a while, trying to get get that movie off the ground, which I'm really excited about. When I had heard, you know, you were doing it back in the day, you know, um, uh, I was really excited that you're you're making it, you know, because I know that you're, I'm pretty sure you're a big Western fan yourself. Oh, yes, you know? I am. And, so you wanted to, uh, you've been wanting to do this movie for a while, right? Yeah, you know, that was a project that we had slated to do much earlier. And, you know, we had uh, some real close calls and then some disappointments. And then other projects came up in front of it. And um, so it's one of the projects that's real near and dear to me, the story. And it's funny because it deals with... Uh, single parenting and interracial relationships in the late 1800s, which is kind of taboo. And then there's the action that uh, that takes place in the story and how the family deals with it. But anyways, I really uh, shopped this um, story around Hollywood quite a bit, and people were initially kind of turned off because uh, it just touched a little bit too close to the, um, the racial issues. Matter of fact, uh, the main development guy at uh, Nickelodeon Films read the script and loved it, but he said, you know, it just, you know, they like to positive reinforcement, you know, of people 
of all races and nationalities living, working, living, existing together. They didn't really want to highlight controversy and, you know, hardships and stuff like that. So it was funny because uh, because of the um, the interracial element, I kind of experienced some prejudice in Hollywood, which is funny because, you know, of course I'm just, uh, you know, I'm a, a Scottish white boy from uh, Michigan, and nobody there knew, but I really ran up against a lot of problems, you know, and I had some other opportunities to get the, the project off the ground if I was to write out certain elements of the story. And I just wasn't willing to do so. And that even caused a few problems and a few relationships that I had with some other producers in the industry because they were seeing that the project could get made and some dollars could exchange hands. But I was all about, well, why don't we write something different? You know, because I I honestly believe that this story needs to be told. And now we're, we're very close to announcing some very good names associated with the project. And uh, cool. so the, the script's been read by some major people. I mean, even the people, uh, the name people that everybody will recognize, the, the lists were quite big of people that had read the script and we had to kind of choose from. And so, you know, it's one step at a time. And, and this project, I, I believe a project will happen in its own time and sometimes it's just not time no matter how bad we want it so sometimes it's better for something to go on the back burner and to do something else and to revisit it and you know obviously something's changed and now now there's an attraction to something that was kind of you know something to avoid before so knock on wood it looks like all systems are set to launch of course we had probably about 15 people in here uh, just before the holidays, and um, we got the western towns all set and everything else, and everybody's on break now, and then they come back mid-January to gear everything back up. So I think we're cleared for takeoff. And uh, is, is it going to be in February that you're shooting it? Yes. Okay. That cool. is the plan. Uh, and have you have you shot any of it yet? Like, have you done any kind of like start started working on it at all, or is it just really really I right never, now? I I don't shoot stuff usually in pieces. I just really avoid that when at all possible. I know we just had to do pickup shots um, for Book of Ruth out in California, Northern California, in the mountains. But unless it's for a, a, a move, a company move, you know, to a different geography. I'm really not about breaking camp too often. So, no, we didn't roll any footage. Uh, we won't start until February. That's the thing is we didn't want to shoot and have the continuity broken up, you know, into two different states of winter, I guess. And so right. to push everything and start shooting in February. So. so you've never done that for any of your movies pretty much other than, well, you said Book of Ruth, but that was – were pickup shots, but you've never actually shot something before and then yep. shot something later to fix it, to finish it? Well, let's see. The only ones I can think of, Wicked Spring we shot in two pieces, but that's because for the home scenes, 
They had me grow a beard and gain weight. All the actors did. And then we took off a couple months, and then we went and we shot all the battle stuff, you know, because then he wanted us all thinned out, and we changed the facial hair to show the passing of time, I think three years or something. So I know we did it on Wicked Spring, and Booker Ruth, we had to do pickups. From Venus, we actually uh, shot some bookend stuff for the interweaving part. But most of this stuff has been shot all at one time. I mean, if you're going to get in a groove and you're going to get a group of people organized, you might as well shoot it all out while you're there, while the equipment's there, while everything is, you know, you've got continuity, because, you know, things change. And, uh, you know, so I've always tried to shoot everything, you know, all at once. And sometimes it's Wait a little bit, get all your money in one place, and then shoot it rather than get a little money, shoot a little. Get a little money, shoot a little. And I know people do that, but that just wasn't a way for me to do things. I can't do it that way. Well, you know, I just had to ask because I wasn't sure, you know, and I know that's a that's probably a good question to ask a lot of, um, you know, filmmakers or producers and whatever because, you know, they have certain ways well, that they it, like to do things. Well, I think, no, I think a lot of filmmakers, and if you talk to them, they'll tell you, they, they have to do that out of necessity. And if it came down to shooting that way or not shooting anything, I would probably do that as well. But I think it just takes a little bit more patience, you know, because everybody gets a little bit of money and they want to start shooting right away because it's exciting. You know, we can shoot a little bit of this. You know, we got this much money. But if you're patient and you get it all together at once, then you can shoot it all together. And then you can move cleanly right from production to post-production. But, see, that's hard for a lot of people. Right. Uh, you yeah. know, I totally, totally, I totally understand that. Um, I guess uh, also, you know, uh, what, as far as, like, Wild Michigan goes and um, – Oh, wow, I'm, I'm looking at your list. You got a lot of stuff that's uh, and that's coming that's coming soon. You know, that's being worked I, on. Or... Phone's been ringing a lot lately, and you know, I feel really blessed that the biggest problem I've had the last couple of years has been schedule. So. I guess that's not a bad thing, right? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a. I'll take the scheduling problem over the unemployment problem. Right. Yeah. And, uh, has a lot of people asked you to help produce their films and stuff? Like, you know, have you got a lot of people coming up to you saying, well, I've got a great script, but I don't have a producer. Would you be able to come on board? <laughs> well, you know, if, of course, there are those people that, um, there's a lot of people, yes. And, you know, I politely have to decline working with a lot of people. You know, just because they've got, well, first off, you've got a finite amount of time, you know. And I do make an exception on the acting front. There are people that, you know, I will sometimes, if my schedule permits and I really like a project, you know, I'll work with someone, even if they're young filmmakers and they're not, you know, they're not bringing that much money. I mean, I'm I'm in the union and everything, and so... There's been times that I'll work a first time with some young filmmakers that I like what I've seen because you're planting a seed, you know. Those guys doing the $75,000 film 
$150,000 film, you know, this time might be the ones making the $7 million film three years from now. So, uh, you know, I'm in a nice situation where in the right project, some projects that are bigger, my name just adds value, and there's other projects that, you know, my name is enough to get them their distribution and get it where it needs to be. And, uh, you know, so I try to give back with the acting. Producing's a little harder because <clears throat> it takes up so much time, and at the same time, if I'm if I'm trying to get, uh, you know, some people up to speed, then my own stuff is suffering, projects I'm working on. But a lot of times if I'm acting on something, I will come on board as a co-producer and I will bring options, you know, other casting options, which are other name actors, celebrities that are friends of mine. I'll bring distribution. Or if they're missing a key crew person, you know, if they're missing a good DP or they don't have a good editor or composer, you know, I'll help put that stuff in play, but I can't run their ship for them. You know, I can't have someone say, uh, here's a we got a script, we have no money, and we don't know what we're doing. I, you know, I can't, I can't help that much, you know what I mean? Right. But if it's uh, some established filmmakers who, they're making good art, but they just haven't been able to get that door open far enough, you know, to get that first good distribution deal. If I think that it's a good role and it's something for me, then, you know, we'll work out something and, you know, they'll get their distribution. You know, right. and that's, so. so and you do know, you think, well, go ahead. No, what were you going to say? I'm sorry. No, 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 go ahead. I I want to hear what you had to say before I said anything. Well, it was just continuing back on with, uh, it, it's hard. It's hard to uh, say no to someone, you know, who's who's really looking for help. But at the same time, I've been through every step of this game. And I know when someone has kind of paid their dues, you know, are, have they paid their dues or are they coming and asking me to pay their dues for them? You get my difference? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so cool. it's kind of like someone else told me, you know, that there's people in this industry that are very willing to help people trying to help themselves. You know, but if you're not looking to help yourself and you're just looking for somebody to, like, there's some sort of entitlement, you know, there's not entitlement, you know. That's the other thing. Everyone thinks that the entertainment industry, that it's all, you know, going to be, you know, drugs, hot tubs, and strippers or something like that. You know, no, it's a hardworking industry with people that work very hard to tell these stories. And, you know, yes, uh, the cameras are usually rolling on, on it's kind of like, a, you know, a premiere party. But that's not how those people live or, in a, you know, a, fe- a film festival or this or that. They're celebrating. They might be having a few drinks and, and relaxing for that moment, but you watch it. They're back on the phone the next day. They're making deals. So I think entertainment gets kind of this reputation that it's an easy industry to people on the outside. Someone else uh, that I know, a director friend of mine, Nathaniel Knows, who uh, directed this Murder at Hollows Point, will be coming out this year, actually 2009. He said you've got to work twice as hard for half as much. And that's, wow. almost a good, that's almost a good equation. 
you know, if you love this and you would rather do this than be selling retail at the mall or, you know, working in an insurance office, if you're willing to work twice as hard for half as much to do something you love, you know, that's kind of how you start out. And I guess, you know, what I liked about the way he put that is that's a smack of reality in someone's face. You know, if someone hears that and they go, just like you said, wow. But then they think about it and they go, okay, yeah, I can start with that. Then you know you might have a chance. But if you say, wow, and then you're still saying, wow, tomorrow, and then next week, wow, then maybe it's not for you. You know what I mean? Right. If you if you say, wow, and then you that's all you're saying, you know, you're not actually going out there and working on it, you know, and trying to uh to understand well, the business, you know. Right? Yeah, don't don't be surprised if your project doesn't get funded if you never go make the cold calls or, you know, sit down and plead your case with people that have made money and say, you know, tell them why they think they should invest in your project. But more than often those people are investing in you. And when they see you go through the work of setting up an appointment with their, you know, with their secretary or office manager, coming in there, giving a presentation, they respect that because, you know what, they see a little bit of themselves in you. So the filmmaker that does that will get results. The filmmaker who sits around and, you know, half-heartedly tries to make their movie and then criticizes other people's movies, you know, uh, those are the worst kind. Just like the actors, you know, who they don't want to put in the work to try to either not, – I'm not even talking about learning their craft. That's a given, okay? But I'm talking about marketing yourself as an actor. If you don't do all that and you're just waiting by the phone, again, you get a bitter, unemployed actor who thinks he's better than everybody else and sits around, you know, complaining why – why isn't his phone ringing? You know what I mean? Right. So, you know, it's just, you got to be a doer in this industry. And this industry is full of a lot of talkers. And all you have to do is be a doer. And you know what? People can criticize your work, and you'll keep getting better. And someone's going to see you as a doer. And pretty soon, you know, you're making somebody else money then you're going to start making some real money yourself. Oh, awesome. Um, I, I, I want to mention this. We haven't mentioned uh, Ghost Town yet, one of your more popular uh, newer movies, too. Um, you were just telling me earlier today that it's, is it like the number one rental? Uh, yeah, like, uh, Ghost, yeah. <clears throat> Dean Teaster's Ghost Town. Ghost Town is a, a Smoky Mountain Western that um, I put together with uh, Dean Teaster, who is an actor-producer buddy of mine. And he co-directed it with Jeff Kennedy, who you know is a CDI director, has done some of our other films. But it's a tribute to his father, because his father used to um, participate in the live gunfights up at Ghost Town in the Sky theme park in Maggie Valley, North Carolina. And he initially approached me about he wanted to do a doc film, you know, outlining the history of the theme park, which was closed at the time, and they were trying to get money to reopen it. 
And I had been up there just before they closed, and I was like, Jesus, this is like a film set here. This is a film set. And so we worked a deal to be able to shoot our film up there. And the funny thing is, the day that we got financing for Ghost Town, the movie, is the day the park got their financing to reopen. So it was just kind of like one of those cool little deals. Instead of doing the doc film, I said, you know, Dean, why don't we just make a feature film? Because he wanted to use all the high-end equipment and everything, and it's like we didn't know diddly about marketing, uh, you know, a, a doc film, but at least we could build off what we've learned and stuff on the feature film. So we shot the, the script, uh, you know, for Ghost Town in a month up at the park when they were closed, and it was just a wonderful experience because, first off, the western town is like 5,000 feet up on top of a mountain. So you've never seen a western town with the kind of visuals behind it that you do here. And it was a dream come true just because of being, you know, brought up on all the westerns. But the the neat thing is, is that Lionsgate picked it up. We also had an opportunity to release it with Warner Brothers, and we chose Lionsgate because of uh, the 310 to Yuma. They did a real nice job with that. And uh, Barry Barnholtz, Barnholtz Entertainment actually, has been handling uh, the marketing for it. They output it through Lionsgate. And for six weeks now, it's been the number one rented Western in the United States, maybe Canada as well. And I've seen the Rentrack Insider Reports, and it's amazing. The first week we came out and we were number one, it was like it had been, and we're just talking rental, but it was 76,000 people. And I was thinking to myself, it's like, man, that's almost like uh, WrestleMania or something. <laughs> you know, they had almost 80,000 people or something like that. I was like, that's kind of hard to imagine that, you know, almost 80,000 people have watched, you know, our film this week. And now, uh, last count, it was well over 250,000 rentals. You know, and then you got to factor in, did they watch it alone? Did they watch it with somebody? You know, did they? So it's just really starting to get mind-boggling that we've been six weeks in a row at number one, and we've never had a film, you know, in the charts like that. We were number 11 overall for the first week for all DVDs, you know, that were being rented. But um, it, it's it's been kind of... Uh, you know, a pinch me is not quite real, but a lot of our business deals going on. After Ghost Town, uh, we are we now have two different westerns that we're going to be doing announcements in uh, Variety and Hollywood Reporter. Uh, we got two other westerns financed. Wild Michigan is one on the slate, and then Timberwolf is going up right behind it. And um, oh, wow, yep. So. You know, it, it's it's like a dream could come true. You're talking about typecasting before, and <clears throat> there is a little bit of typecasting going on that, um, you know, with the incentive and then Westerns being a real hot property. I mean, I had a development meeting uh, with Lionsgate, and they said that uh, Westerns and teen comedies are the hottest thing right now. And it just so happens that our Western is really doing well, and so immediately, you know, how hard we fought before, 
Now we've got a slate of westerns financed. You know, it's it's crazy. And uh so, you know, it it's it's still kind of the other thing <laughs> I'm putting the finishing touches on Timberwolf now. So the business deal came together and, and now I'm under pressure next week that I gotta turn in the script for uh Timberwolf. So it's kinda of funny that you're writing knowing that what you're writing is gonna be shot. Compared oh, wow. to yeah, know, I mean, writing definitely. and shopping and stuff like that. So it's uh it's a testimony to the hard work of all the people involved. I mean Tony Hornis uh produced with me and he plays an excellent bad guy in the film. And then of course we've had a great cast of people. Uh Dean, his big marketing idea for people out there that don't know, um Maxim magazine in two thousand five, <clears throat> they voted uh the top screen villains of all time. And if you had to guess, who would you say would that be? The top screen villains? Yeah. Uh, all yeah. like all all the top screen villains or the top Yeah, they so, like, said the, the top screen villains of all time. They did a they did a survey in two thousand five, Maxim magazine. And I was surprised when I was first told this as well. Is it a John you know, Wayne character or? Well, I was thinking, you know, even like Darth Vader, you know, Hannibal yeah. Lecter. But the number one, the the audience, the people out there wrote in, and the two mountain men from Deliverance. Have you seen Deliverance? Yeah, I I've not, but I've, I know about the uh, a lot. <laughs> I know about the film, and I know the infamous scene. Yeah, well, the infamous scene, the guy who raided that baby is Bill McKinney, and that was my father in Ghost Town. And then the other mountain man, the no teeth, said he got pretty mouth. That was uh, that was Herbert Cowboy Coward. And see, we reunited him for the first time after 30-some years on camera going head-to-head. And I got to tell you, those are two intense guys to go opposite one another. And so that was kind of our marketing thing was, you know, there's been so many people that I think were frightened by that film and those characters. And Herbert used to work up at the theme park. I mean, he was an actor up there for years. And see, the rumors were that he was just some guy they pulled out of Podunk and, you know, got him in the movie. The truth is, is that Burt Reynolds worked up at Ghost Town in the Sky theme park with Herbert Cowboy Coward. And when they were casting Deliverance and looking for the second mountain man, uh, he introduced Herbert to him, and he scared the producer so much that they cast him right there. So, you know, that's kind of the story there. So to bring those two guys back on camera again, um, I think that's what's catching on with people as well. And then we also have a very unique twist that uh, Renee O'Connor from the very popular Xena TV show. We ended up casting her. She loved the script, but the female roles that were left were very small. And so she said she loved the script, but there just wasn't something in there for her. And I said to her, well, you know, I apologize, and maybe we'll catch up with you on the next film. And I got off the phone, and I was like, damn. You know, Gabrielle was a cool character on that TV show, and it's like, I bet you... You know, she could really bring something to the script. Well, then I started thinking, is there any character that, you know, was written for a man but could maybe be played by a woman? 
and there's a father-son. There's a an old-school outlaw and his son, Little Jack. And we ended up casting her as Little Jack. And when I called and pitched her the idea, she loved it. We didn't change not a single line of dialogue. So she really is kind of that son that her father always wanted. And it is a, it's a great acting performance that she puts on. And then on top of that, you know, Rance Howard, you know, Ron Howard's father, I think brings one of the best uh, roles that I've seen as, you know, the sheriff who can't keep law in the town. So, you know, being that it was our first Western, it's, it's not, you know, it's not the greatest Western that was ever made, but I think it was a hell of a first step for us as a company. And we brought something very unique to it as well. I mean, there's, you know, you don't feel like you're watching just a regurgitated Western. So, now, now, when, uh, you know, you said that you had worked with uh, Brant Howard, uh, you know, had you worked with, hadn't you worked with them first at uh, Miracle at Sage Creek? That's correct, yep. So uh, is that pretty much how you got to meet him and that's how you got, is that how you got him onto the role for Ghost Town? Oh, yeah, because, you know, it. I think we... We talked about the deal. We ate at Denny's, he and his wife, Judy. And uh, the deal was done at Denny's restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) Very classy. Yes, yes, yes. Well, you know, we were actually, we were way out in uh, Mescal, Benson, Arizona. And, you know, there was very, we had very few choices for restaurants and stuff. You know, so... Denny's was close to the hotel, and, hey, Denny's was good enough for me in college, and in a pinch, Denny's is always good enough, you know? Definitely. Um, so, yeah. Asleep, John? What? I said, are you falling asleep on the other side of the No, phone? no, definitely not. Um, <laughs> are you? No. They, okay. they have my, mouth, my mouth has been running. I got to tell you, I've had my nose in a Mac laptop, for like three days working on this damn script. So, you know, that's when you contacted me this morning and said that uh, you needed somebody to replace on your show. You know, I've been kind of just by myself, so I was like, uh, you know, sure. Talking (laughs) sounds, uh, I need to talk to somebody. I can't just be writing on the script and in all these people's heads. So, So I appreciate the opportunity again. No, and I, I appreciate it. I wasn't sure if you had a good time the last time or not, so um, I'm oh, glad that yeah. you you seem to have a good time. And Actually, that's what John Regan and I had uh, discussed um, because uh, I said, because you had, you had uh, contacted me uh, before uh, about doing, you know, a show to promote Ghost Town and all, your, all the other stuff that you're, you're doing like we're doing right now. And I had mentioned that to John, and John had said, because um, he had remembered that you know I had done the show before, I said, "Did he have a good time the last time?" And I don't, I don't know. So here we well, go. I think Ghost Town, yeah, Dean Teaster's Ghost Town at uh, Walmart, and they've been having trouble keeping it in stock. Wow. Um, it was actually a, a, I read something in Newsweek that um, down south when it came out 9 a.m. they were sold out in the Carolinas there. And, you know, I keep hearing those stories. Of course, you know, I'm not going around Walmart to Walmart checking it all out, but 
based on what I'm seeing from the Red Track, you know, insider reports, it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, people are going out and getting it. And I'm, uh, I am I could not be more uh, thankful. I mean, this is the type of stuff that, you know, when we were first starting out, you dream about, you know, that you've got something being seen, you know, at this level. I mean, the next step, obviously, is theatrical, and I consider that's exactly where our goal is. So I think in the next couple of years, you will definitely see some of our product going to the big screen, which Ghost Town did play for an entire year on the big screen down in uh, down in the North Carolina area there uh, connected to the theme park. So, you know, that was pretty exciting that, you know, they were – Several seconds a week, a lot of tourists going through there, and and so you know, and we did a nice theatrical run with an ordinary killer prior to that. So it's you know we've had these kind of limited engagements, but I'm looking forward to the day where we get the wide release on something. Yeah, definitely like a big big uh, theatrical run, you know, huge, uh, huge theatrical run, every screen everywhere, right? What is the goal? I want to. I don't care if it's for one week. At some point, you know, it'd be nice to have the number one movie in the country, you know. And we've had that for six weeks for uh, Western Rental. And you know, the competition is good. It's Comanche Moon and the Deadwood series, season one and two. And I forgot the rest on there. Maybe the Pledge or something. Oh wow! Like that. You you beat you beat Deadwood, huh? That's yeah. Pretty cool. No. That's an accomplishment right there. Well, you know, it it just tells me we're getting there, you know. It's and Deadwood's great. I mean, all those other films. I mean, that's what I'm saying is it was an honor to look at the other films that were out selling. And of course, we're the new kid on the block, so some of those films have been selling for several weeks, you know, and are ending their runs. So, but you know, anyhow you look at it, it's it's good, and you know, we're we're appreciative. So. You got about what is it? It's I'm seeing twelve fifty seven. Are they going to cut us off? You got any other last um, important questions? Actually, well, I mean, we can talk for a little bit more after they cut us off, so that it'll it'll hit the archive. But you know, people can't hear it live. You know, that's okay. the <laughs> that's the only problem. But uh, you know, but otherwise, we can talk for a little bit longer if you want. But um, the, I guess the other thing I just wanted to mention. Um, well, God, I mean, we didn't even touch all your movies, obviously, because you got so many that you've done, yeah, you know, but, yeah, but I, I do want to also talk a little bit about uh, Judges and Dog and um, your experiences working on those two films. Uh, let's see, Dog was a, uh, just a small role, but very memorable role. I was actually doing a favor for um, one of the writers, the writer of the script is uh, James Corlock, and I've known him since the In the Woods days. So found out he was associated with it, and they called and asked about a role, and I said, sure. So, uh, you know, that's going to be a surprise. I mean, they were, they were a good group of guys. You know, they're, they're climbing the ladder as well, and I think that uh, – they're working on putting together a good product to take them to that next level. And Judges, Judges is going to be getting another life at another studio, which I hope to announce sometime early next year. 
And uh, we had an opportunity for judges to come out uh, possibly with um, Dimension Films before, the Weinstein Company. And they were in the midst of their separation from Disney. And so there was no business going on. And we got a little impatient, or matter, they got a little impatient, the investors on judges. And so we assigned the film to a different distributor. And it, it underperformed for what it should have. And the thing is, is that uh, some studio folks see some big potential in it. And so we're going to reset it up at a distributor for a DVD release, television. And I am told that uh, the script for the second judges is complete and being tweaked. And we are planning to set that up and try to make that into a theatrical and do kind of like a Road Warrior versus Mad Max. Take it and step it up. So I'm excited because, uh, you know, that's a character, the Jack Creed Buddy Colt character that I enjoyed playing, and I think there's a lot of places to go with that. Also, I will say that A State of Hate is the Detective Lynn Kendall that I played in An Ordinary Killer. Um, he's going right. to be brought back. Not in a sequel, but it's a follow-up, you know. It's kind of like a Jack Ryan. Like a spinoff. Yeah, right. same character, different different case. And really I didn't cool. Wanna, yeah, I didn't want to make an ordinary killer again, so there's some really good twists to this story. And Tony Hornus will be directing that one. I, I will tell you, I, I own, uh, you know, Ordinary Killer, and I've actually showed it to my parents, you know, and they enjoyed it very much. I mean, it's it's one of the movies, one of the few movies that I think, you know, my parents would definitely enjoy of the, you know, because they're not really into the, like, the horror type stuff. So, like, a, dra- a, dra- a crime drama is something that they'd be more interested in. And my mom's more into, like, the forensics kind of thing. So she really, she really dug... Uh, your film, uh, the film. I know. Well, I I had a good time making it because again, you know, that's a very different character, and um, you know, I other than that was a true story and it was extremely sad. Uh, you know, it was it was fun to be part of telling that kind of story. And if you notice, we didn't sensationalize it. I mean, we were very sincere about how we approached it. <clears throat> right. Because uh, you know. I don't know how many people know, but where we shot the scene where the the body was found, that's where they actually found the body. Our actress was laying on the exact spot where they found her body. Hmm. So, you know, there was this kind of real haunting kind of, you know, respect that everybody had when we were filming. Yeah, that's really cool. And, um, I guess the last couple, the last couple questions. I guess um, you know you've worked with uh, like Jeff Kennedy on several projects. You know, having him direct. Are are you thinking of um, directing yourself? You know, and you worked with Anthony, who's been directing. But are you thinking about directing? Uh, Jeff Kennedy's my partner actually in collective development, <laughs> but he, you know, his main focus is as a writer director. As it stands now, we have three in-house directors, and Jeff Kennedy will be directing Wild Michigan. Tony Hornis will be directing The State of Hate, which is a little bit further down the line, because he just actually on Amazon, if you go on Amazon, you can see An Ordinary Killer, the book, 
Uh, it's for sale on there, and it goes national in April. And we're going to re-release an Ordinary Killer, a special edition with the release of the book. Really cool. And then, and then Dean Teaster <coughs> will be directing Timberwolf. So each one of them are now kind of, you know, they've got their own individual projects. And, of course, you know, I work with all three of them. So. Now, you keep saying Dean Teaster, who is the director, but um, he's credited as Dean West. Is that... That's his acting name. And, you know, I think it was because when he's from uh, Maggie Valley, North Carolina area, and when he first came, you know, north, he, you know, had southern accent and everything else. And somebody along the line, some brilliant agent must have convinced him that he needed to change his name away from Teaster, which is, you know, his, his name. And so... You know, he went to Dean West, but now I think he's kind of settling into his own, and he's going back to Dean Teaster for a lot of things. You know. Really, really cool. I didn't. I, I wasn't sure, like if that was his birth name or, you know, uh, oh, one's evil, one's not, one's got the goatee. You know, <laughs> like the the evil Spock. <laughs> the, the Dean Teaster. They they look very closely alike, but one of them is twistedly evil, and the other one is is not. So, yeah, so he's the good and the bad, and the good and the bad and the teaster. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, DJ, for coming on. And um, before before you go, is there anything that you wanted to mention to anybody to to let uh, to pimp out? You know that let them know. You know, I I guess at this point in time, um, I encourage everybody to just uh, go and either rent Ghost Town, Dean Teaster's Ghost Town from Hollywood Video, Movie Gallery, Netflix, or go buy it if you want to take your time and watch all the extras. There's a lot of cool extras on it. Um, And that's at Walmart. Walmart is the cheapest place to get it. Of course, you can get it on Amazon or anything like that. And um, continue to leave your comments up there, you know, good, bad, or ugly. You know, it's, uh, like I said, at this stage, you know, people, it's fascinating when somebody's really got something to say, but the stone throwing doesn't bother me at all. So take a watch, let us know what you like, what you don't like, and, uh, you know, hopefully I'll just be able to keep working with all these good artists and we can keep bringing entertainment to the fans and, and uh, hopefully we'll make a couple movies that, uh, you know, that you enjoy. So that's it. Very cool. Thank you so much for coming on, dude. Uh, oh, wait, uh, plug your uh, website for everybody so people know where to oh, find you. Yeah, well, you can go to uh, www.cdiproductions.com. And that's a good way to keep up with a lot of our updated news and projects. And, uh, yeah. And then also um, I do have a fan site that was created out of Texas, djperryfanclub.com. It's very original. And uh, Nice Lady Pepper out of Texas runs that, and there's a good group of them. So I do a, an online journal and blog where I kind of talk about my trials and tribulations of this fine industry on there so sometimes other filmmakers can gleam a little bit of information off there 
really cool. And I guess I guess your MySpace too can be found there too. I think it's yeah. a, was it myspace.com slash DJ Perry? I believe so. I you know, <laughs> and of course from there you can see a bunch of our movies. Uh, a lot of the directors have MySpace sites for the movies for Judges, Book of Ruth, Dog, uh, which was Eighth Plague. Um, yeah, there's a lot of them up there. So, you know, have Definitely. fun. Investigate it. Investigate it. That's right. So. All right, cool, cool, man. Well, thank you so much again, and no, especially coming on the last minute and you know agreeing and you know uh, and and being being early just to make sure you're on. It's great, you know. Yeah, no problem, man. All right, well, thanks for having me, and uh, we'll do it again sometime. Definitely, definitely. Let me know when you got more more, more stuff to come on, and maybe if you want to bring on, you know, people like uh, Dennis or uh, or anybody else that wants to come on and kind of promote their stuff, you know, let let me know, and I'll I'll set them up. We'll get Dennis Terry in to talk about music, sound design, and editing. You know, I could get, uh, you know, I'm sure we could get some of these people to come on there and, and talk and, and share their experiences. So, yeah, I'll talk to yeah. some of them. I love it. Yeah, no, definitely. Just you know, spread it around. Let them know because I'm definitely open to getting more people on here. You know? Some of these guys are over 50. Do you have, like, a 9 o'clock slot for them? <laughs> <laughs> we can set up whenever they whenever they need to, you know. So. Just kidding. Anyways, all right. Thank you, John. I will talk to you soon, buddy. All right, definitely. Have a good one, man. All right, have a good holiday. All right, you, uh, oh yeah. Uh, uh, last question I uh, should have asked before: uh, uh, What are you going to be doing for uh, uh, for Christmas? Are you going to be uh, in hanging out in Michigan, you know, and whatnot? Yeah, Lansing, Michigan. All my family and friends are here, so so I am I'm home for the holidays. All right, awesome. Uh, well, Merry Christmas, man, and. Um, uh, uh, feel free to put this up on your uh, websites and stuff, and let people know about it. Yeah, yeah, so I'll take that and I'll spread it around because I think it's great. So, all right, thank you, man. All right, bye bye. All right, bye. All right, that was DJ Perry. Um, uh, you know, actor, producer, writer. Uh, you know, great guy. Uh, he's got a lot of stuff. If you look on his IMDb, he's got whew, a lot of stuff that's going on. We we tackled a lot of it, but I think there's a lot we still could have tackled. But, you know, only for a two-hour slot, really, you know, Blog Talk Radio doesn't give us that much chance. So, But thank you again, once again, uh, DJ, uh, if you're listening to this part, um, uh, and everybody else who is listening, and uh, to the, the, few, the, the people in the chat room that were listening, Sorry, it's short notice, but hopefully we'll have a really big archive. So uh, thank you so much uh, for listening, and I hope you guys enjoyed it. Thank you. Bye.